the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. There is a song that was written back in the 1940s. I don't remember who the uh, composer was. Uh, that, that essentially talks about everything suddenly has been switched, meaning night is day and day is night and, and good is bad and bad is good. And that seems to be where we find ourselves today. Ironically enough, traditionally from the historic Judeo-Christian perspective from the Bible and the Torah, uh, we define sin. We knew what sin was. Well, yesterday's old sin is now today's new norm. We have completely, to many levels, abandoned the sense of a law of nature or certainly of nature's God, find ourselves embracing this entitlement to modern welfare state, and this is the trouble that we have now found ourselves in. The big question, of course, remains in a postmodern or post-Christian environment in which we live, how do we address what I'll simply call spiritual impoverishment and come back to the sense of not only acknowledging the authority that of truth, but that truth even exists? This is part of the fascinating um, study inside the pages of this new book called Resurrecting the Idea of a Christian Society. Its author is with us today, Dr. R.R. R. Reno. And, Doctor, what about that? I mean, to begin with, there's this argument we used to have to, uh, from a Christian perspective, uh, share our faith in, in Jesus Christ. And now we find ourselves arguing whether or not God even exists. So how do we go about not only getting people around to acknowledging the authority of truth, but who that truth is, what the source of that truth is? I mean, certainly the first thing is to, we've got to be very sure we don't internalize a kind of attitude of self-censorship. You know, political correctness is a very powerful force that's, you know, running through our society. And there's always that danger of internalizing it and just kind of withdrawing or withholding uh, and so we, you know, you got to speak the truth in love. You know, you have to, you have to be winsome, charitable, and always recognizing the speck in your own eye, and the beam in your own eye. Eye when we talk about the speck in another's eye. So, so, but, but still, we got to make sure. You know, it's the, the, uh, uh, in the Muslim world, you know, the the non-Muslims are called dhimmis, and scholars have talked about an attitude of dimitude, which is to internalize second-class citizenship. Uh, and, I, and I worry that, that Christians in America today are going to internalize that kind of, well, you know, second-class, I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't talk about that to my co-workers or people in the neighborhood and so on. Because um, in my experience, you know, there's a lot of dissatisfaction, and we've talked in this hour about how much dissatisfaction there is in our country. And, and you know, I, I've, I, I've taken—one of the things you're not supposed to talk about politics, you know, 
you know. Right. And ever since the rise of Trump, you know, I, I have, you know, because I'm, I'm a journalist and, a, you know, try to think about what's going on in our society. So I started asking people, you know, ordinary people, people, you know, guys who pull the espresso shots. And, you know, uh, here in New York, we only ride around taxis, taxi drivers and, and all that sort of thing. And I asked people about their political views. Are you going to vote for Trump? Who are you voting for? And um, people are tentative at first. You know, a lot at stake. These are, you know, this is about the future of our country. And but they really appreciate the opportunity to have a conversation about something that matters. Uh, how much more you ask people about uh, questions of faith? What do you, what do you believe in? And, you know, do you think there's life after death? And you know, do you believe in uh, that there, that God exists? And you'd be surprised the conversations you have with people and how appreciative, how appreciative they are. We all suffer in this regime of political correctness. Uh, a lot of people suffer, a lot more than we realize. It's not just us, religious believers who suffer, but folks who are, you know, folks who are maybe not, not so sure where they stand, but they want to be able to talk and think and they don't like being policed all the time. So I, I think that's the first step. Getting the conversation started, then critically important, acknowledging the fact that there's no such thing as a values vacuum. And we've, we've often thought, well, if we can only be, be neutral about such matters so that we don't run the risk of offending somebody else, um, we, we don't want to take our belief system you know, any further than the tip of our nose. And yet this notion that somehow we can live together in peace and harmony in a values vacuum, which seems to be the direction in which we've headed, is, is completely false, is not well, what we we're, what we're seeing is that the supposed neutral secularism is in fact an ideology that compels us all to conform. Um, you know, uh, every society has norms, social censure, uh, but I, I just feel like when I was growing up longer ago than I would like to admit. Uh, there, there was more room to move. Um, there was more elbow room. And now in a society that's supposed to be, you know, diverse and open, there just seems to be a lot more penetrating, you know, uh, control over even people's thoughts. Um, and I, I think that's natural, right? I mean, as a religious person, I recognize that all, the ultimate destiny of my life is beyond the political. But if you don't believe in something transcendent, you can make a god of the political. And that's what's happening in our secular society. We make a god of the political, which means that we ultimately are establishing a religion. It's called secular progressivism. Uh, Whereas a Christian society recognizes that ultimate truths, ultimate, the ultimate destiny of every human person is above the affairs of men. And that lets us approach political life and our, our neighbors with a lot more generosity, a lot more tolerance, or capacity for compromise. Um, and, and that's very much needed in our time, a sense that, look, the political is not the ultimate. The ultimate is... is uh, 
is the transcendent. Well, not only, I think, Doctor, the capacity for compromise, but the capacity for compassion for one another. And, of course, that compassion and, and the understanding of the challenges or the plights of another has to come because there's some sort of moral order. Unfortunately, we find ourselves in moral disorder that has so completely flipped all the rules on their head that suddenly now we see crime, for example, is is not a moral issue. It's suddenly simply a, an economic issue, that poverty is a, a economic issue, not a moral issue. Or, uh, you know, we've, we've got everything absolutely backwards. And sadly, the end game, the end result is where we find ourselves today. We are in the, the clutches now of a postmodern society that uh, that sadly is redefining everything and in some cases saying well there are no defini- definitions and so it's it's sort of up to uh, the, the the eye of the beholder so to speak and uh, as a result it can play, can, creates this this environment of just complete utter chaos not only at the economic level but at the political level and every other the book is a fascinating read and i think one that ought to be embraced by every christian every person who holds dear the sense of having a ultimate authority of truth that believes that moral relativism uh, or situational ethics is is highly disruptive to our society. We find ourselves in utter moral disorder because there are no mores. There's no foundation from which uh, we we carry and comport ourselves. We've eliminated all the sense of of boundaries. Freedom just means doing whatever you want without any lack of accountability or responsibility whatsoever. And we've redefined the American dream to mean getting rich as opposed to the way our forefathers defined it. The book, I think, again, a critical read, particularly during this this time that we're all, I think, taking a moment to reconsider where we stand, where we think who we are as a people. The book, again, called Resurrecting the Idea of a Christian Society. It is written by Dr. R.R. Reno. You'll find it available bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also order it online through Amazon.com. You can get it through uh, Dr. Reno's website at firstthings.com. That's firstthings.com. And the book, of course, is published by Regnery Press, a media partner of the same fine folks who own this radio station. Our thanks to Dr. R.R. Reno for uh, an insightful and thoughtful conversation. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back in the 1970s, people of faith, evangelical Christians, people who were believers in a Judeo-Christian, biblically-based moral code or ethic, were referred to as the silent majority. Well, here we are, fast forward the clock 40-something years, and we're not so silent anymore, and we are definitely in what appears to be a growing minority. What has happened with this major paradigm shift where what had once been considered normative and mainstream is now all of a sudden, well, from one end of the continuum, irrelevant to the other, considered extreme? Well, some insights on not just the shift, but also how we who are most impacted by this shift can appropriately and effectively respond to it. We take a look at Good faith, being a Christian when society thinks you're irrelevant and extreme. Joining me is the president of the Barna Group, a leading research and communications company that I know you're very well familiar with, Dave Kinneman. And David, thanks so much for being on the program. 
Thanks so much for having me, Craig. Boy, uh, certainly this election cycle is proving uh, this point to a tremendous degree. Try to have any kind of a civil conversation with people of opposing viewpoints, and you suddenly realize that ha, we've made the paradigm shift for what had been, uh, for the most part, 2,000 years of historic Christian faith and mores, and now all of a sudden we are the ones considered the extremists. What's going on? Well, I think there's a lot of cultural changes that are taking place, but I mean, certainly the data bear that out, that a majority of Americans now uh, think that, that that religion as its practice can be part of the problem. So, for example, we find that if you were to share your faith with somebody, 60% of Americans believe that's a socially extremist thing to do. Uh, it's okay if someone came to you and asked about your faith and wanted to find out more, but if you try to actively evangelize somebody to try to talk somebody who wasn't really all that is interested in listening uh, into your faith, then, then that's viewed as extremism. So the, really the way we conclude um, in this project about what's happening is that the, the society that we live in is changing its mind about the Christian way of living, and that, that's evangelism, that's attitudes towards sex and sexuality, that's public expressions of religion. Uh, Christianity is increasingly viewed, as you mentioned, as extremist or as irrelevant, and and so Christians are really struggling with what to do with that. We are struggling indeed, and of course, at some levels, it's hard to uh, hard not to internalize a lot of this or or take it uh, tremendously personally. I mean, many of us that are old enough to remember a day and an age when we were kind of in the mainstream, and when expressing views, for example, of uh, believing in the moral code, sharing our faith, marital faithfulness, uh, biblical errancy, kind of put us in the in the norm, and all of a sudden now that's considered to be extremist, and in some camps, uh, things like prohibiting young women from getting an education, forcing them to dress in black and cover their faces in public, and even executing people for not believing, that's that's okay. Yeah, well, I, mean, I think this is, you know, obviously you're speaking about Islam and other countries, but in the United States, what's interesting is that um, Americans are changing their mind around a lot of things. So sex and sexuality, uh, praying for people in public, public expressions of evangelism, and what we find in the research is that a majority of American Christians are feeling very pressured. Uh, in fact, a majority are feeling uh, persecuted. They use that term to describe their faith and culture today. Uh, my co-author of this book, Good Faith, and I are careful not to use the term persecution. We don't think that that's the way that pe- people in North America are currently. We're not being persecuted in the same way uh, that people around the world are being persecuted, as you mentioned, um, in in you know in in the Middle East and in other kind of contexts, Christians can face very brutal um, suppression of faith. But in in the United States, we do think that there is a, a new level of pressure. There's certainly more skeptics, that is, people that are that are um, you know skeptical about faith and religion in America. Um, and that's actually the fastest growing quote unquote faith group is people that are religiously unaffiliated. And so I think there's a lot of things that are that are making for a more pressure-filled environment for today's Christians. And among younger Christians, a group of people that we spend a lot of time studying here at Barna, millennials, um, people that are in their teens and young adults, they're, they're telling us that they're often afraid to speak up on behalf of their faith. They're feeling pressured. They're feeling silenced. They're feeling sidelined. And, you know, listen, we actually find good evidence that they're sticking up for their faith, that they're a bright light in the midst of a very dark generation. But those are perceptions that we have to take stock of, that they're feeling pressure, they're feeling as though their faith doesn't matter in the world. So how do we help to fortify them in their faith? And that's really what we did with this project, was to try to help 
Christians navigate these very difficult conversations that we're having now about faith and culture, why Christianity still matters, why we can be irrelevant and extreme, and that is actually what Jesus is calling us to be in the very best way possible. Is part of this then ultimately, David, to change up both our perspective on this and the dialogue? Because I think at the core, uh, people of faith, Bible believers, those that have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we know the relevancy of the gospel. The problem is that maybe the methodology and manner in which we have communicated that has failed in some respects to keep up with the times, and the world and culture around us has changed and changed very dramatically. Technology has a part, I think, to play in all of that. And now suddenly we feel kind of like the children of Israel, although here we are living in exile in our own country. Yeah, this theme of exile is a key theme that we bring up in our in our work, um, and I think our research really bears that out. That Christian, you know, Christianity is a ma- still a majority of Americans. People identify as Christian, uh, but the evangelical community is is really only about um, one in ten Americans, depending on how you measure it. And um, and listen, you, you know, for those of us who are very committed to Scripture and committed to Jesus, that. Um, we're, we're really much more countercultural than we realize, and you know we think we're living in mostly a Christianized country, but that's just not really the case. In fact, what's happening is not just a non-Christian culture; it's a, a it's a it's a selfish and narcissistic culture. And sometimes, frankly, we're as Christians part of that. There's this document this, we document in the book this new rise of the self as the new sort of god of the age, and everyone's sort of looking at themselves as their own sort of spiritual judge and jury. In fact, we found that 91% of Americans say the best way to find themselves is to look within themselves. And, and so that's just very counter to what Scripture tells us, that the best way to find ourselves is to discover ourselves in a truth outside of ourselves, in Scripture, in Jesus, in the traditions of the Church, and so uh, to, to find ourselves, you know, we, we really need to look at those, those external sources of truth in Jesus. Uh, but mostly our culture is changing its mind and wants to be, uh, you know, kind of its own judge and jury. And so, yeah, that's really part of what we were working on this book to do, was to help Christians navigate those really difficult conversations about how to have a countercultural view towards living faithfully today. And of course, the irony is, if you look at a couple of letter, uh, levels, both in terms of sort of the, the, the governmental engagement, um, as well as the, the religiosity engagement, uh, this is certainly not a new challenge from Christ's perspective, is it? I mean, he had to contend with not only Rome, but he certainly had to contend with the church of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so in terms of that engagement at that level, uh, no surprise to Jesus. It's just for us, well, this is the first time we've kind of experienced it, at least here in America, isn't it? I think that's exactly right. And I mean, I think it's a, it's a, it's a great perceptive question because we're dealing with several challenges, many challenges in, in American culture today one of which is uh, the changing social landscape and the fact that in a lot of ways it's not just that the bible has less authority almost every institution has less authority in americans lives than it did a decade or two decades ago the bible has less authority the church has less authority government has less authority media political leaders uh, we're living in a celebrity age and that's just one indication of this sort of self-centered narcissistic god of self kind of world that we live in but the other problems really if we're taking stock of this is that, you know, the church is often very self-righteous in its orientation to the world. And if we read Scripture carefully, um, we can find that, you know, one of the bigger problems in, in the world isn't just the unrighteousness of society, isn't just the ways in which we're godless as a culture. It's about the ways the church loses its moral path 
towards righteousness in Christ, not through our own power. And the message of Galatians is this very thing, is that, you know, you start your, you start your spiritual journey in Jesus, but then you try to perfect it through human effort. And I think that we have to be pretty hard on ourselves when we find that self-righteousness is creeping into our Christian communities. And it happens all the time. Uh, you know, every day, all of us as Christians can, can veer towards self-righteous judgmentalism, which is just as much a problem as the unrighteousness in the world that we're trying to solve. Let's pause on that point. We're going to pick up more of the dialogue on the other side here as we're visiting with David Kinneman. David is the president of the Barna Group, an internationally recognized research and communications company. George Barna has been a guest on this program many times down through the years. David is co-author of a new book called Good Faith, Being a Christian When Society Thinks You're Irrelevant and Extreme. We'll continue our conversation on how to learn and counter all of that as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. So how do we deal with, quite frankly, living in an outright hostile culture towards Christians and people of faith in that sense that we have become suddenly, well, frankly, irrelevant and extreme in the views of some? And part of the challenge, of course, here is uh, changing attitudes. And I think perhaps our uh, guest tonight would agree that the most critical attitude regarding such matters that needs to be changed, in fact, the only one that we really ultimately have any control over, is our own. David Kinneman is the president of the Barna Group and co-author of Good Faith, Being a Christian When Society Thinks You're Irrelevant and extreme. Let's talk about attitudes, and particularly those of us, I think, that challenge or feel challenged by all of this, David, and yet um, sometimes take the self-righteous position that, well, they're the ones at fault, not me. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest challenges uh, that people have today in the church, and my dad is a lifelong pastor, has this great line that Jesus is just as concerned about our self-righteousness in the church as he is about the unrighteousness in the world. And I think that's, uh, that's a very apt statement. And so, um, you know, when you look in the, in the New Testament, uh, Paul is primarily concerned, if not almost exclusively concerned, about the faithfulness of the, of, of the church. Um, you know, in Revelation, where John's writing about uh, his, his revelation of Jesus in the early chapters about the, the seven churches in, in, um, in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, he basically says, you know, the, the faithfulness of those seven church bodies in those different communities in Philadelphia and Pergamum and, um, you know, Ephesus, that, that the faithfulness of those churches is the thing that will change culture uh, in so many ways, in so many words. So I think this is one of the, the key things that we tried to do with our project was to, to say to, to Christians, there's a way to live with good faith, even when society thinks that we're irrelevant and extreme, um, that there's a way for us to have these difficult conversations when it looks at we're trying to help our, our, our kids and our grandkids and our millennial you know, teenagers and youth to try to understand what it means to live faithfully, that there's, there's a way to do this. And we, we actually think that, that we can approach this very challenging, contentious culture with joy, with Jesus' love in our hearts, with uh, a truth in, from Scripture, not, not watering down uh, the truth of Scripture. And so that's really a lot of the things that we were trying to do, was to help people have those difficult conversations in their, in their churches and in their families. Part of the challenge here, too, is we talk about changing the dialogue here, changing attitudes and viewpoint. I mean, historically, and I, I think we've seen this over even the last many election cycles, where as people of faith have been kind of drawn into the political arena, we see much of what needs to be done in terms of resolving moral issues and societal problems is just that. They are problems to be solved. 
as opposed to what would be, I think, uniquely Christ's take on all of this, and that is that these are people in need of a Savior. They're, they're, they're people that are walking apart from God that don't know him personally. They may have problems, to be sure, but the goal here, ultimately, the powerful approach is not going to be to simply try to be problem-focused, but rather relationship-focused, no? Yeah, absolutely. And, and we make the argument in the project that, you know, it's not just issues to be solved, but people to be loved. And, and we love them. We lead with our love. Love is the preeminent virtue. I think a lot of times Christians worry about loving people too much that it might somehow condone the wrong behaviors or wrong perspectives. Uh, but love never works that way, as we read in Scripture. And it doesn't mean that we, um, you know, condone people's behaviors, but there's a certain degree to which, you know, when we understand how love works, and how the countercultural truth of Scripture, and I don't want to underestimate that, it's truth and grace, uh, that, that love really is, is part of what we're trying to call people to. So in, in the book we basically make the argument that, that, that good faith works when we love people as Jesus does at cost to ourselves, that we trust the countercultural truths of Scripture, and then we live that out by bringing the you know, restoration into the brokenness of people's lives. So you know, a lot of times I think people struggle because when we love people well, we're actually trying to restore them to God's original intent as a generous person, as a person of joy and faith. Um, and, and a lot of times uh, their, their own brokenness has brought them to a place where they can't really experience that. And so our love through Christ actually helps to restore them to that original intent that Jesus has for them. So it's not becoming wishy-washy when it comes to our morals or what we believe in. In fact, in some respects, it might be strengthening that, because one of the big arguments that I often hear from people that are not of faith that say, oh, you Christians, you know, you, you talk a good game, but try to engage in dialogue, and you can't even give an articulate reason uh, of what you believe, let alone why you believe it. So it, it's not a matter of... of letting go or compromising our beliefs, but maybe in some ways, David, learning more about them and then being able to, uh, with clarity, as well as a, a sense of, of self-confidence, engage in a non-defensive faction, a fashion in giving reasons for our faith? Absolutely. And, you know, just to give you a little bit of, like, what caused us to write this book, which I think answers that question that you're, you're asking, is, you know, we, I have a 16-year-old, a 15-year-old, an 11-year-old, two girls and a boy, uh, my co-author, Gabe Lyons, also has teenagers. We're in our mid-40s, or early 40s, 42. And um, giving, I'm aging myself here as we talk. <laughs> I'm 42 years old. And, and, you know, so we kind of thought about, like, what do we do to help our own kids in an era when it's not just enough to have the right answer, you know, like the apologetic, you know, handbook, and you kind of look up, and it's, you know, here's the answer to that particular theological problem or apologetic question. That's still important, but the question is how do we live and how do we, um, understand this very skeptical culture, this exile, this modern-day exile that we're kind of living in, and then how do we live that out? And so what motivated us to, draw, to write this, this book, um, along with the data that we collected on behalf of this project, and the problems, the pressure that Christian community is feeling, was really our own, our own experience with our kids about trying to give them confidence that Christianity actually does matter. It, is, it does answer the questions of a complicated age, your, you know, their peers, their, their millennial peers who are increasingly living a spiritual but not Christian life need to understand the importance of Jesus in their lives. And so we were, we were really trying to 
fortify our own children, to give them uh, confidence that, that Christianity is going to matter in their, in their lives, again, for some of those difficult conversations that they are going to face. Is it important, too, in your opinion, uh, David, and based on the research, that we, that we give the other side a chance to hear them out, at least to hear their heart? And I ask that question because so often as I've watched uh, a Christian in dialogue with another believer or non-believer, that they, they seem to be concentrating not on what's being said or the heart of the individual, but rather ready to pounce with a response or an answer or a counterpoint. Um, and the irony is if you sit down and talk to the average person out there who was not an individual of faith and kind of, I find, dig down into what motivates them, what drives them, that while some of the ultimate opinions that they hold or moral positions that they may have, we might find, uh, you know, in the range from, uh, you know, disappointing to outright disgust. Yet oftentimes we, we can find at least some nuggets that, while perhaps misinformed, it, it, at least there's something genuine in there that, that, that maybe we can use as a starting point to engage in dialogue. Yeah, absolutely. I think you've hit the nail on the head, and it's really one of the purposes for the book was to try to give people an understanding of the heart behind opposing, opposing viewpoints, behind someone who would have a very different point of view, uh, to try to understand that you see these individuals as people first, not as arguments to be won or issues to be solved, but as, as we said earlier, as people to be loved. And, um, you know, G- Jesus has this incredible countercultural way. I mean, he's the hardest, uh, the most sort of, uh, you, you know, uh, difficult in his conversations with, uh, with religious insiders, and he's the most compassionate towards people who have a very different point of view, um, you know, towards women, towards sinners towards individuals who would would seem to be at odds with his you know very message and um, and I think that's that's so important for us as Christians today is to to realize that um, you know think of the last time someone came to your door and knocked and really persuaded you by uh, you know argumentation about the you know Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon or someone who came maybe to evangelize and it's just like we're never persuaded in that way um, you know they're looking for people who aren't really settled in their beliefs. They're looking for people who can be persuaded. And I think sometimes we end up looking at everyone as like a target. And Jesus asks us to be evangelistic, to go and make disciples, but not to go look, you know, to go target hunting. And I think that's an important distinction to really see the friendships, the heart behind people who disagree, the fact that we can love people, even if they never dis- never end up agreeing with us in this earthly life. Again, we want to try to pray for them and to talk about, you know, the, the, the truth of Christ and, and as he's changed our own lives. But, but again, changing the metric of success from simply getting someone converted uh, to really becoming really deep friends that, that, you know, we're able to say Jesus has changed our lives. Could he, he in fact, change your life? And even deeper still, oftentimes I think the approach is we're simply trying to win the argument um, as opposed to win somebody for Christ or or love them uh, in a fashion that while, yes, we know ultimately we we have a concern for their soul, and yet uh, first and foremost uh, to demonstrate the love that God showed for us, that we understand, to a degree at least, the amazing thing that has been done that through Christ's work on the cross, we might be forgiven. And so empowered with that knowledge and understanding to go and to do, and as David points out, not to see people as problems that need to be solved, but rather as people to be loved. And some wonderful insights inside the pages of this new book. Again, the book newly published by Baker. You'll find it at Christian bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also get it online. Go to simply Good Faith Book. Dot org. That's goodfaithbook.org. 
www.barnacleshop.org. And our thanks to David Kinneman, the author of this book and president of the Barna Group, for being with us tonight. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, with the start of the new semester, many parents in the Bay Area are getting a bit of an education about public education. Did you know, for example, that a school nurse working in California public schools may not give an aspirin to your child without parental permission? But that same nurse may arrange transportation for your daughter to plan parenthood to have an abortion, and by law, they're not required to tell you. By California law, transgendered and questioning students may use the bathroom of their choice without regard to their biological gender or impact on other students of the opposite sex. For years, sex education in public schools had been optional. If parents wanted their children to take a sexual health class, they had to sign up for the instruction. But a new state law in effect this year requires all California public school students to take sex education beginning in the seventh grade. And reading of the Bible or teaching about Christian beliefs in public schools? Well, that's against the law in California. But you might be surprised to learn that one California school district openly teaches about Islam, even encouraging students to memorize portions of the Quran, while the Bible and Christianity remain off-limits. Brian Recton joins us in studio to talk a bit about the KFAX back-to-school half-off tuition opportunity. And boy, there's got to be a sense of some parents now with the start of the new semester and their kids are coming back questioning things, bringing questionable homework assignments, and wondering what is going on in public education. Well, it's clearly a different world today that we're living in in the public school environment. And Uh, A lot of our listeners are aware of a program that we've been offering for six years where it's called uh, Back to School at Half Price. What a lot of parents may not know is it's not too late. Even though they've probably already enrolled their children into the public school system, those first uh, semester report cards are going to come out. They've already probably had conversations with with their children about questionable teachings at the school. It's not too late. We have a list of Christian schools on our website at kfax.com. And these schools are just waiting with open arms, especially with families from the public school system, where they're going to get a quality education that's not going to disagree with the standards and the beliefs of the of the home life. And uh, those schools are listed on our website. So for those that have been listening uh, over the years, we've been doing this for six years. We have over 185 families that have enrolled in Christian school as a result of these vouchers, where a family pays half price for that first year where they enroll their child in a Christian school. More than enough time for you to gauge the quality of the school, the quality of the education, and, and then make a determination if you want to re-enroll. You're not under any obligation to, but the option is there to re-enroll and keep your child in that environment that agrees with what you're teaching them at home. And I would imagine down through the years, Brian, because you have the opportunity to speak directly with many of the families, that the reports coming back of the difference that Christian education is having in the lives of their students have to be remarkable enough that making the way, making the sacrifice to continue that enrollment throughout their scholastic career becomes a top priority because they've seen the stark difference, not just between many of the moral values that we spoke of earlier, but the percentile of students that graduate 
from a Christian school and move on to a four-year college or university is higher than in public education. In fact, public education, they're having a difficult time even getting students to graduate. Only 85% of public high school students in California actually make it to graduation. Well, you know, it's interesting you'd say that because we have some of the schools that are listed on our website that have participated all six years that have a 100% acceptance rate of their high school seniors graduating and going on to college. The quality of the education is unquestionable. Um, The standards are high. Again, you're not going to have to filter when your kids come home, what did you learn today? Actually, you're going to be anxious for them to come home and hear what they learned today if they're in a Christian school. The real point uh, for, for today is for parents to understand that it's not too late. If they've already had conversations about, gee, I wish we, you know, I wish we weren't in the public school, I wish we could pull our kids out, at least go to the website where we have the schools listed. All the information on these schools, the websites, the address, the contact information, feel free to call the schools. Just tell them that you're exploring the possibility of a KFAX voucher and uh, go take a tour of the school. You can do all that, then come back, claim the voucher, Get your child into a school environment where they're not only going to get a quality education, but it's going to be Christ-centered, and it's not going to be in disagreement with what you're teaching them at home. And the never-too-late message is important, I think, particularly for parents who have seen their students now matriculate to the next level. So they finished mid-school, now they're in junior high school, completed their junior high school career, they've moved on to high school, and the parents are beginning to wonder, wow, what's happened here? Mm. This new school is not like the last one, and we're really concerned about our child's education, not only scholastically, but morally and spiritually as well. And that's the important thing that you point out, Brian. It's not just a matter of top-notch education, reading, writing, and arithmetic, as we used to say, but it's making sure that the principles that are being taught and underscored day-to-day in your child's life by arguably the largest influence, because they spend the most time, more time than most parents do, six, seven hours a day, making sure that what is being taught and underscored is, in fact, in harmony with your beliefs, the teachings of your mm-hmm. church, and in the biblical fashion in which you would like to raise your son or daughter. And, and not to mention, Craig, you know, I talk to a lot of parents that have pulled their kids out of public school. One of the big complaints that they had was that basically the, the, the public schools teaching crowd control. I mean, you got classrooms with 30 or 40 students um, in, a, in a private school environment. It's half that in most cases. Uh, the, the quality of the education we've already talked about. I, I would encourage listeners to go to the website We have a map that shows where all these schools are. So clearly, you know, if there's no school participating in your geographic area, well, then then it may not be an option for you. But if there is a school or two in your geographic area, at least it's something to pray about. It's something to consider. And then when that report card comes out or your child comes home with, you know, another issue that doesn't agree with your teaching at home, well, then you're that much closer to at least contacting the schools, meeting with them, taking a tour. Any family listening, any parent listening now can call me uh, on that website at kfax.com where they click on the banner for the back to school. They'll see my name, my number, my email address. Be happy to answer any questions that families might have. So if throughout this year you've thought it not necessary and... (laughs) 
have discovered in the opening weeks of the new semester, oh, yes, a private and Christian-based education is very necessary for my son or daughter. And then, of course, you had thought heretofore it wasn't possible. Well, actually, now it is possible, thanks to the KFAX half-off tuition opportunity. Details available again on the web along with that interactive map at kfax.com. Just click on the Back to School banner, and it'll take you directly to the page with all that information. You can do the research on the school near you, make an appointment to take a tour of it, and find out whether or not you conclude that not only is Christian education right for your child, but also, thanks to the KFAX half-off back-to-school opportunity, affordable for your child. Online at kfax.com, that's kfax.com, or you can call toll-free for more information, 800-947-5329, that's 800-947-KFAX. And Brian, I know that down through the years you've heard many exciting and encouraging testimonies that have come back from parents and grandparents, too, who Mm -hmm. have uh, made the effort taken the time, and made the investment in their child's life. And I guess at the end of the day, the results really speak for themselves. Craig, I have a scrapbook of uh, cards, uh, letters, emails. I even have some families that send me photographs of their children. You know, when the when the school does the class photos and they'll send me one, they just they want to keep me abreast of what's happening. And, you know, in many cases, these children are – it's life-transforming. The families are so glad that they – that they finally said, yes, I'm going to do this. And then, you know, taste and see that these schools are good, and then you'll you'll find a way. And that's what most of these families say. You know, yeah, it's a struggle. Private school is not cheap, but you're not going to have those contradictions on a daily basis. And I believe that God, with God's help, you'll find a way to be able to keep your child enrolled in a Christian school. And in all these years that we have been covering public education, private education here on Lifeline, I will tell you this. One thing I have never heard from a KFAX listener in almost 30 years, and that's this. We regret that we sent our child to a Christian school. Never hear it said. So to get more information, go online, kfax.com. That's kfax.com, and click on the Back to School banner. Or, again, you can call toll-free for more information, 800-947-5329. That's 800-947-KFAX. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Media Group. All rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.